1: After the Rushdie Affair in 1989, there was an important shift in the public life of British Muslims. Their image came under closer scrutiny, which led to new social policies and self-perceptions. This moment also served as a significant pivot in the narrative and representational patterns in British Muslim literature. Claire Chambers, senior lecturer at the University of York, examines these new paradigms in making sense of contemporary British Muslim novels, published with Palgrave in 2019. She outlines Muslim cultural production during this period through a literary analysis of the senses, especially those beyond the visual. Overall, Chambers provides a rich portrait of the non-visual senses in British Muslim fiction over the past three decades. This book also continues the work of her previous one, Britain Through Muslim Eyes, Literary Representations 1780-1988, to also published with Palgrave. In our conversation, we discussed the Rushdie affair and its consequences, how to approach touch, smell, taste, and hearing in literature, the senses in a digital age of advanced technology, the role of Islam in contemporary literary representation, the construction of religious practice or gendered norms, radicalization, and authors such as Hanif Qureshi, Monica Ali, and Mohsin Hamid, among many others. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Claire Chambers about making sense of contemporary British Muslim novels. Welcome Claire. Thanks for joining us on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks for joining us again, I should say. Uh, this is your, your second uh, interview. Thanks for making time to talk about your new book.
0: Thank you, Christian. I a real pleasure to speak to you again.
1: Yeah, so this book, Making Sense of Contemporary British Muslim Novels, um, is a continuation of your previous work of the wonderful book that we spoke about, uh, Britain through Muslim eyes: Literary representation, 1780 to 1988, and this one picks up um, where you left off, pretty much, uh, at least in terms of uh, the time frame. Um, but this book, I think, also does really interesting stuff in terms of uh, the type of kind of theoretical approaches you you explore, uh, kind of moving beyond the eyes and the visual and sight, um, and exploring this kind of vast uh, sensory perception that comes through in these these wonderful novels so uh it's really an excellent book
0: thank you i mean as always i didn't write the book i thought i was going to write um (laughs) this is what happens to me it's a whole journey um written through muslim eyes i thought would be this history that would pack in everything from the year dot to the present. But the more you look at Muslim writing, it goes back a long way. So as you know, I ended the project, um, written Through Muslim Eyes, just before Rushdie, I cut it off. And this book was supposed to be Rushdie to the present. But in the end, I only talk about Rushdie in the introduction at some length. Um, the chapters themselves are about the 90s to the present day. And what i became very excited about was continuing the theme of the census that i did introduce in Britain through muslim eyes i had a lot on the gaze and the reverse orientalist gaze of the traveler um from south asia or the arab world and from um, muslim backgrounds and they were looking at um britain um and comparing often negatively to their home country, which um, was often they viewed it as superior. So there was a kind of reverse Orientalism going on, and I noticed a lot of tropes of looking and seeing and eyes um, in those texts that I looked at. So when I moved to the more recent writing, they were just highly sensual texts. So I ended up writing on... um, the other four senses um, so i open with the 1990s and two novels that are very sexy and i did a whole lot of stuff around touch and the haptic and then in a middle part on the 2000s the first decade of the century i talked about olfaction and smell in relation to monica ali and nadim aslam um and i also talked about taste in relation to three um Arab and Persian writers, Arab and Iranian writers, because I'd done, I had touched on um, taste, as it were, in Britain through Muslim eyes in relation to the history of curries and South Asian food in Britain. So it was really good to expand that discussion of food into the sort of Mediterranean and and the Middle East. And then finally, I looked at sound and the post human in the technologised. Um, 2010s in the final part. So I looked I, in chapter five, I talk about terror and listening in relation to Kamala Shamzi's home fire and Tavishka's, just another jihadi jain. And then finally, I have a whole chapter on Mosin Hamid's exit west where I'm thinking about phones and drones and how um, the senses open up um, when technology gets involved.
1: Now, um, for those uh that might be wondering about the timeline um this break in 1989 you 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 kind of uh you know hammer down that this is really uh, a significant shift um and probably a more useful one in the british context than perhaps other markers that people might think of um can you just um you know i know this is kind of like one of your new, unique takes so what um you know can you give us just like a brief summary of 1989 and like what what happens for the british muslim community kind of after this period what are what are kind of the significant changes uh that reflect uh or are reflected in this literature you look at
0: that's a great question um so i think i mean It's difficult to identify any one turning point, and I hope I'm not doing that, but 1989 um, is a very crucial moment in Britain, and perhaps more so than 9-11 in a British context, even though 9-11 and the year 2001 has been very significant too. Um, But 1989 is really where a lot of things changed for Muslims in Britain, and of course that was due to the um, Rushdie affair. Um, So Rushdie published... The Satanic Verses in Autumn 1988 um and it was controversial from the outset um some British Muslims actually wrote to Rushdie and asked for a an insertion a pre- preface just saying that this was a work of fiction and and distancing himself f- um from people thinking it was um, a factual book about the prophet and his history um Rushdie wasn't prepared to do that um he he was Um, he was feeling he wanted to present it as he'd written it he didn't want to sort of hedge it around Um, and in India the writer Kushwant Singh immediately saw that it could be controversial with Muslims in India so the book was banned there Um, and then in Britain where it was not banned um, it was being passed around decontextualized um, and campaigns against it and in my area where I live now um, in Yorkshire, in Bradford and also in Lanc- Lancashire, Bolton, um, there were protests and it all started to gather ahead of steam. Then, as you know, in, on Valentine's Day, um, February the 14th, 1989, the Ayatollah Khomeini issued his fatwa, the religious opinion, saying that this book was blasphemous and offering um, reward for any Muslim who would kill the author or other people involved in um, the publication of the satanic verses so Rushdie went into hiding for nearly a decade um, and I mean awfully it, several people including the Japanese translator were killed um, in violence due to um, this controversy so in terms of what this this means and, and why this is a big shift for how Muslims are viewed in Britain um, it's it's the way that they were presented in the mainstream re- media um, was very, in a very simplistic and binary ways. Um, they were othered right from the outset. So in the protests, um, there are famous newspaper reports seeing them as alien, that they came down from the north of England. Um, they they. Had long beards, they were mostly men, and they were violent and, and extreme. This is the way they are more and more being portrayed in the tableau press at this time um it 's notable actually that the word islamophobia really gained currency in the 1990s not post 9-11 so in the British context, there was a the Renamed trust published their report on islamophobia in 1997 I think so well before nine eleven um Muslims in Britain were, were being othered, were on the receiving end of hatred. Um, and so 9-11 certainly um, made that more concrete and legislation was brought in and the securitization that we see in this te- century, which has been terrible and shouldn't be overlooked. But I think it, it it is a continuum and that it goes back to 89, which was also significant in other ways, like, the, you know, of course, we all know about the collapse of communism um, that year, Also, the invention of the World Wide Web, of Tim Berners-Lee putting his um, almost finishing touches to that project of the Internet, um, which is something very important for this book. So 1989 is important in lots of different ways. Um, Obviously, for me, um, Rushdie is at the heart of that.
1: Now, um, in terms of kind of British Muslim cultural production, there's really uh, just a, I mean, a, a growth, steady growth after this period. Whereas in your first book um you know the the, the materials you had available were were much uh, more limited in scope and, and genre and these kind of things um can you can you talk about kind of um you know what were some of the broader shifts you noticed in terms of uh, British Muslim literature in terms of genre, in terms of themes? Um, and then why why exactly did you pick the books you did to focus on? Because you could have, I mean, there was numerous books you could have picked to to look at.
0: That's a great question as well as a lot there. Um, so in terms of um, what you said at first, it definitely um, we've really got a treasure trove of writing, and t- you know, up for choice in the post-1989 period. Whereas previously in Britain Through Muslim Lives, I... I for example I didn't find a text that I wanted to look at for the 1970s there just wasn't anything appropriate really um but you could not say that for the decades subsequently I had to leave a lot out and I'll talk to you about why I picked certain ones and left out others um shortly um the shift in terms of genre and theme um well I think Rushdie leaves his mark. um, In the 90s, um, the writers that I've chosen, Adaf Swayf in her novel In the Eye of the Sun, and Hanif Qureshi is actually fictionalising the Rushdie affair in the Black Album from 1995. Um, There's quite a strong emphasis on humour, which might seem surprising in the light, you know, fair beings you know cataclysmic and and very frightening and very divisive um, but humor does come into play quite a bit in both those authors as well as sexuality so this is why touch was my big focus in the, the first part um, that that writers are perhaps in reaction to increasing stereotypes of the austere sexually repressed Muslim they um, they're, they're very playful very frank um out in particular is extraordinary novel almost um a thousand pages completely gripping um semi-autobiographical and and very honest about sex miscarriage uh, about you know sugaring of one's pubic hair um about torture about all different things that are done to bodies um Childbirth um, and bad sex and good sex really in that novel um and you know so it this is really quite counter stereotypical and um, similarly um Hanif kureishi in the black album is his novel is a novel of ideas about um ideas of religious purity versus uh, kind of hedonism of the 90s the rave scene and um, dance music and um drugs ecstasy um he's he's juxtaposing those it's not really a very balanced novel of ideas ultimately it's pretty clear that he's on the side of secularism and sex and and pleasure um but he does give a hearing and is perhaps at his best when he's tri- trying i mean he's not brilliant at On the Muslim side of things, I would argue, but he's at his best when he's um, writing about racism and and the internalization of racism that makes um, Shahid, the character, turn to an extremist group while he's at university. Um, Then in the 2000s, um, so we're talking about post 9 11 actually, because both both novels are from, um, in fact, all the novels I look at are from, you know, after I think 2004. Um, there is this turn to sensuality and um, Nadim Aslam's Maps Philosophers and Monica Ali's Brick Lane have both been looked at quite a bit through the lens of taste and lo- there's lots of imagery of food so I wanted to do something different so I looked at smell in those novels and smell as something that is used a lot in racial discourse you know um s- smell is invasive you can't really avoid it. you you've got to breathe in so smell is quite um uh it it can be a toxic um and full of hatred um sense racists often use the language of smell to express that that disgust um and it's there in both in discussions of racism in those two novels, but also um, more enjoyably, the smells of food, the smells of incense hang over the novels. Um, music is compared with smell in al- almost, um, it's an almost synesthetic way. Um, then moving on to the taste chapter, I called that chapter "Taste the Difference." Um, it's about the sort of almost food porn um in some of these novels um about saffron um and rice in steaming piles about the the pleasures of eating um but also you know the prohibitions around food so i wrote at some length about the halal issue um and i'm just thinking about genre i don't the um the novel was my focus I did bring in, I mean, chiclet starts to come through, especially in the post-9-11 period. Um, authors like Leila Abbalela and um Yasmin Crowder are certainly playing with the chiclet genre. Um and in the in our current decade, um this theme of listening to the other, sort of politics of listening comes through a lot. Um in Home Fire, um the jihadist character Parvez is working. He goes to Syria, to Raqqa, um, to work as a sound man, recording the um, sounds of a blade through a neck, for example, for, for ISIS. Um, and he's actually sickened. He, he's sickened by what he sees there. He's, he's quite an artistic character, and he's been very naive, um, very wrong. Headed in joining up and is not prepared for what he finds there. But it's all through the through through this sense of listening that we learn a lot. Um he he wants to record 24 hours of a normal London day when he's at home. Um and so he's really a frustrated artist in many ways. And if he had been listened to more in a British context, he might not have been radicalised, I think the novel is saying. Tabish cares Just Another Jihadi day, and I put together with Kamala Shamsi's Home Fire. And the cares novel also has quite a lot on listening about how women's laughter is um, looked on askance by ISIS. Um, they have to stifle their voices in again in northern um, Syria. Syria. Um, and finally, um, this theme of post-human sensory perception, which I trace in Mosin Hammond's West. West. Um, I did a whole reading of the helicopter sounds over the novel, um, the surveillance um, drones as well that, that hang over the characters, you know, looking at the refugees and migrants and, and keeping tabs on them through, you know, very cutting-edge technologies. Um, I did, um, I brought in the cyborg, Donna Haraway, and... Um, you know Rosie bray on the posthume for this chapter and and really enjoyed exploring what happens to the senses as we're you know constantly glued, glued to our phones nowadays so there's there's kind of new sensual experiences coming through there i i um want to just mi- briefly talk about why i picked picked up on these particular novels and left out others i do talk about that in the conclusion there was quite a few that i regretted leaving out but in the end i wanted this one unlike the survey that was written through muslimars i wanted this to be a real critical work where i could go in really zoom in on these texts so i carefully patterned it so that i had five women and five men writers um i also wanted a range of backgrounds um Unfortunately, in the end, I didn't have a Turkish writer. So my biggest regret is probably leaving out Elif Shafak's Honor, which could have been included in the taste chapter quite well because there's um, stuff on racism with food and the the protagonist's love interest works as a baker. Um, But in the end, I just had too many and I I liked keeping the five women and five men together. So that's how I I worked it out.
1: Wow, that was was an impressive uh, run through as well. Um, you, really, you really have mastery of all these titles. Um, the the other thing I should note for um, for listeners who may be interested in the book is you, you really do the same kind of uh, like very what seems like uh, effortless synthesis of not only the, the titles that you're specifically looking at, but then how they relate to broader issues going on in society, how they relate to other texts, both literary texts but then also theoretical texts and it's it's really an impressive uh, uh an impressive work and many of these chapters probably could work very well um you know isolated uh, uh you know from the book if somebody wanted to incorporate something about literature from uh you know recent british muslim authors they could pull out the last chapter the last two chapters very easily without um you know, losing the, the 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 main crux of the book. So,
0: thank you. That's really good to hear, actually, because that's what I'm aiming to do. But I'm never sure if it's paying off.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, since you've kind of kind of taken us through um, uh, much of what you've done, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna uh, kind of zoom into a couple uh, works that I was specifically interested in. And and one, I'm I'm a big fan of Hanif um both his kind of literary work, but then also his, uh, his visual productions um, and kind of the relationship between those. And you, you look at the, the Black album uh, as your kind of um, uh, text for analysis, um, but you also do a really good job uh, in that chapter of kind of thinking about um, his larger body of work. Um, and the other thing that might be interesting for, for listeners to kind of get an idea of what's going on, uh, more broadly among um, several of the authors, is he, of course, was was well-known uh, before the Rushdie Affair um, and then continued to be um, well-known and, and well-received. So uh, c- can you talk a little bit about kind of uh, what you do in your analysis of the Black Album? Um, but then, if possible, do you think you could talk about um, kind of the the pre-Rustian era and the post rushdian era shift that happens in his work, uh, specifically related to Islam, because that seems to be one of the things that that changes his attitudes or representations of Islam and what that means for for British Muslims.
0: Yes, absolutely, it's a great question. Um, so, pre rushdiefer he was well known for My Beautiful Laundrette, um, the film from nineteen eighty five, um, in which there is, there are British. Pakistani characters and um first generation migrants from Pakistan living in britain um and nationality and race are much more um points of interest and sexuality is always Rushdie, um Qureshi's bread and butter um religion doesn't come into it much at all there is um there's a few references to religion but but they're, they're very uh, for for our you know, contemporary students who were born after 9-11 nowadays, they're quite surprised how little mention is made of Islam because it becomes such a hot topic. In the in the film there's just the drug dealers wearing this this drug dealer has a fake beard to hide the drugs in, so he looks like a Mullah or a Malvi, um, but is in fact cover for um narcotics. And there is um the wife, the wronged wife, um, who the uncle Nasser is is cheating on um she this pakistani wife tries to do black magic on and and succeeds actually on rachel Nasser's girlfriend um so that's kind of an accretion associated with islam Jadu, you know black magic that's actually frowned upon in orthodox circles but um but is believed to be um a spiritual practice um so there's these little mentions but really it's a film about race and sexuality and class um then there was um the buddha of suburbia um again there's a few mentions of religion and again it's pakistani british pakistani muslim families or indian um, muslim families in britain um the the father Jalala's father goes on hunger strike like Gandhi to protest um because he wants his daughter to have an arranged marriage so he he's always been quite a liberal character but he has this sort of turn towards tradition and um Indian nationalism in order to get his daughter in line and he he maybe brings up religion a few times but again it's surprising how little it comes in to that that novel which was published I think in 1990 just before but but it was written before, um, mostly written before the the Rushdie affair. So then the first novel after the Rushdie affair is the Black Hand, which I talk about. Um, and as I said before, it's about a, um, a a boy turning to religious extremism while at university in London. So it's very prescient because it's um, thinking about Islamism and um, is, Islamic militants. In the 90s, which not many people had done, um, and it as I said before, there there is a certain lack of nuance in in his portrayal. He, he's not good at thinking about moderate Muslims or really explaining the, the attractions to religion beyond an anti-racist stance. Um, but what I think s- Especially interesting with Qureshi is that after, because he was good friends with um, Rushdie, he's Qureshi's a little younger um, and looks up to Rushdie. And in pretty much every essay that he's written since then, he he brings up the Rushdie affair one way or another, um, and he is very much on Rushdie's side, um, and and can make quite sweeping comments about um, about political Islam sometimes in ways that are not so well formed, well informed though he is, is seen as something as a spokesperson on these matters and he brought out the word in the bomb, a whole collection of his essays on islam um this century um so it's had a profound impact on him as, as it would do if if you're friends with somebody and this this his, his going into hiding happened um It also comes back in his fiction, so he didn't just limit it to the Black Album, but he, as you know, he made a film and a a short story that became a film, My Son, the Fanatic, um, a few years later in 1997, around that sort of time, um, which is again about religious extremism and it's this time um outside of london he wanted to set the film in bradford but there was um a bit of an uproar so he filmed it in nearby halifax but it is about that city and it's a bit of an outsider's perspective i would say um you know comic because koreishi is very good at comedy um and some very interesting things to say about pop music and clothes and but also the desire for purity and a turning away and a renunciation of that amongst young people um also you know about the younger generation being more conservative than their parents um the the son in that film is is, is repelled by his father um <coughs> close relationship with a prostitute. Um, and the son turns to, um, you know, very. he gives away his possessions and becomes very involved with a mosque group. Um, also in fiction, um, in a novel like Something to Tell You, which is 2008, I don't talk about this in the book, but I have written upon it elsewhere, so I'm a little bit rusty, but um, in that um, there is there is um, an, a British Indian woman who starts wearing um, the veil after 9-11 because she wants to make a political stance and she wants to see how people res- will respond to her on the tube. Actually, sorry, it's not after 9-11. It's, it's, it's after 2005, um, the London bombings. She t- she takes up the the veil towards the end of that novel. And there are a few British Pakistani characters who are reflecting a lot more on their religion than in... Kureishi's um, 80s and very early 90s texts. So I think there's been a real shift. Um, he is he is still fascinated by this whole issue of book burning versus um, you know complete freedom of speech. And he's definitely on the freedom of speech side of the argument in sometimes quite dogmatic ways. But he does it with such a lightness of touch and a humour that um, it's always interesting to read him. I would say.
1: Um maybe somewhere to go from there is um with uh, just another jihadi jain and homefire, you uh they they talk talk about similar issues of kind of uh, radicalization, extremism and um but in a different uh kind of British era, so to speak, um in terms of how those types of people are being treated, um how uh radical forms of uh Islam are being understood uh within British society. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, you analyze those, which you kind of use uh, or think about kind of the sonic landscape? What does that do in the, in the kind of thinking about uh, the contemporary British Muslim context?
0: Yes, that's great. Um, well, the sonic landscape, I think it's it, they are both very interested in how much we should have empathy for the terrorist and how much we should listen to their arguments, which is obviously a big question that that sociologists um, and anthropologists have been asking for some time. Um, um, but these writers do it in very lyrical ways through the sense of sound. Um, both of them just lending such a sharp ear to the current climate, like you say. Um, and in Shamsi's case she's particularly focused on citizenship and whose voices are heard and who is you know, has their citizenship as a provisional thing that's easily taken away um she's written an essay on the, for the guardian a few years ago about about being made un british about how um second generation third generation and now fourth um british people um who have no connection with other countries are if if they do um get on the wrong side of the law even if it's a um, mist- mistaken identity they can find themselves stripped of british citizenship in in a very in a very racist and islamophobic way um you know K-Kamla Shamsi is so prescient in this novel because she predicts two things that have come to fruition so she um she has a Carol malone her character is um the first british um British Muslim Home Secretary, and that happened with Sajid Javid, a very similar kind of character as well, both um, quite deracinated and uninterested in religion and and almost, you know, quite right wing. Um, And both of them have refused citizenship to a fellow British Pakistani, british muslim actually in um the novel it is parvez who i mentioned before this guy who goes to work for a sound man um for isis in real life it was shamima begum so british bangladeshi a woman who at 15 was groomed and ended up uh, marrying an isis soldier she is you know quite unrepentant she has been brainwashed um but she does want to come home and sajid javid refused to allow her quite recently in her third the third, for the third time she lost a baby in a refugee camp so it's been a really big case here in Britain and Sh- Shamsi seems to predict the whole thing in, so the novel is so thoughtful and very timely um, and it's a re, of course a rewriting of Antigone um, this idea of the dead body of the te- of the terrorist in this case in in Sophocles' play is Polynesis. his body is not allowed to be brought back to Thebes and in Shamsi's Home Fire it's Parvez's body um it's not allowed to be brought back to Britain so the twin sister is, the Antigone figure is called Anika um she goes to Pakistan to kind of protest her brother's death and lament and it's it's very beautifully done um just another jihadi Jane um. It's 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 interesting that the male writer Tabash Kerr is looking at a female jihadist um and Kamala Shamsie, a, a female novelist, is looking at a male. There's this reversal I found in other novels as well. Uh, recently Fatima Bhutto published um another ISIS novel called The Runaways, in which she looks at um a male, uh, mostly male, um jihadists and then there's a young adult novelist called Muhammad Khan in I Am Thunder he um, looks again at a female jihadist so I'm quite interested in this sort of gender crossing that's going on um, in some of these ISIS novels not all of which I have chance to discuss in the book but I'm hoping to do that in future publishing um, and care is interested in especially in women's voices and how especially a woman in a hijab is not listened to and, and is spoken for both in britain both by her own community so women are not allowed to go to graveside because their early are thought to distract the mourners from from their grieving so women have to do their grieving at home in these kind of quite um dear bandy quite austere communities and also um in mainstream society, in white society, they're not listened to their, their stereotypes in all different ways as the novelist shows. And then but then when the girls get the uh, Jamila and her friend get very disillusioned to go to um Syria, their voices are not listened to there either, and they have to um speak very quietly not laugh if they want to watch youtube they have to watch silent films and stifle their laughter because it's they're in such danger so they're they're muted in all different ways um and it's a very interesting portrayal of that sound and whether it you know it's a sort of rewriting an answer to the question um can the Subaltern speak that's proposed all those years ago? These two novelists seem to be asking, can the oppressor listen in a way?
1: And one of, one of the really interesting uh, books and uh, chapter by you is on Hamid's Exit West, uh, which kind of synthesizes um, the various kind of sensory uh, analysis that you do throughout the book um, and kind of think about the, the future of sensory perception uh, in many ways, so can can you um kind of just give us uh like a little recap of what Exit west is all about and then um, what what happens to the senses in this digital age of advanced technologies um, and then how might we uh, in similar ways to you're talking about um, home fire um how might we think about the the current historical and cultural significance? of Hamid's work, even though it's this kind of magical realism?
0: So to recap the novel, um, it's about two refugees, well, they become refugees. Their names are Saeed and Nadia, which are well-chosen names because they could be Muslim or Christian names, and they could be from really anywhere from Eastern Europe all the way up to China, more or less. These are quite common names. Saeed, you know, as we know from Edward Saeed, is not necessarily a Muslim name, and Nadia similarly. So um, these two characters are in an unnamed country, um, but there are parallels with Pakistan, but maybe also with countries like Syria, because this is a very troubled place with militants um, doing on-the-ground executions and things are really building up. It's a very dangerous place, and um, Saeed's mother gets um, shot accidentally she's just caught in the crossfire so bad things are happening and they decide to leave in the end um, leave their home country and the the magical realism that you asked about is this device of the doors so I go into the doors in some detail um, because it's it's a way of him talking about technology. Um, so you just open a door and you magically appear. First, um, Nadia and Said appear in Mykonos and then they go through another door from Greece and end up in London. And... Um, Hamid talked in interviews about this black rectangle of the door being, a, in a way, a figuration of the phones that we all have in our pockets and we've all got in our hands all the time that take us to another world. So it's a really powerful image of, of how we're all globally connected now, but also how there's still such structural inequality. So, you know, if there's one bit in the novel where um they look at a food fight with some wealthy students perhaps just flinging food around and they they're so suffering and they're so precarious that this is difficult for them to comprehend so you can see that this this internet age and this connectedness that the phones and whatsapp and social media has afforded us um has not done away with inequality um so the migrants are highly dependent on their phones. Um it's it's like the sixth sense that they need in order to cross borders. You know, information is shared online. And the first thing that, that Madhya and Saeed do wherever they end up is just start looking for um for signal so that they can connect with people and, and get information that they need to stay safe. Um and this is true of migrants in real life as well. I looked at a few um academic papers about the about phones and what a necessity they are to contemporary refugees. Most of the advice is on WhatsApp groups and things. And in fact, recently there was an Iranian Kurdish a writer who texted um his memoir um it from an Australian this is in real life from an Australian um refugee camp to his translator. So he published the bulk of this novel which has mountains in the title. I can't quite remember the name where yeah um he texts it to his translator and so um it's a tool of resistance it can be but it's also a tool of surveillance so the authorities are keeping tabs on these migrants and and um and drones are also following them around like i was saying before um so these these tools of resistance can be turned against them so it's, it's a very interesting balancing act that Mohsen Hamid does in this novel, and one of his characters, Saeed, is more sceptical, and he turns his phone off for most of the day and just allows himself one hour of browsing at night time because he thinks it's a distraction and um he ha- has worries about this world. He's also the more religious of the two characters. I don't know if that's exactly connected, but that's how it is. Um, Nadia, as a woman, she's very restricted in her movement. So she just finds the freedom that the Internet um, and her phone affords her is, is irresistible. And she doesn't um, constrain herself at all. She's constantly wandering the earth through her phone in a way that she cannot do um, in real life.
1: Well, Claire, it's it's really a wonderful book, and uh, I'm glad I was able to, to talk to you. Thank you for, for making the time. Um, before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're you're working on now? You're always doing awesome stuff.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, I mean, it's been, first of all, it's been lovely to talk to you and really interesting, and I hope I wasn't too tired and I answered properly. I hope I probably misspoke a few times. But anyway, um, my next publication is... With its impress. So, I'm very excited about this anthology of um, British Muslim women's writing that I'm bringing out in probably around June next year. It's called A Match Made in Heaven. So, it's my first foray into editing fiction. Um, so, I've got 14 wonderful. Um, writers, um, some of them really famous like Shalina Zar- Zarajan Muhammad, who's the author of Love and a Headscarf, she did a story for me, and Aisha Malik who's done Sophia Khan is Not Obliged*. she's another author, Bina Shah from Pakistan who's who has spent a lot of time in Britain, she's another of the published authors, and then half of them are not very well known, they came out of um, creative writing workshops, i have been organising in um, Glasgow, Yorkshire, and um, newcastle um so we found lots of upcoming writers who are really exciting some of them are are so bold and talented and that you'll be seeing a lot more of them in the future um so the 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 theme was love and desire um so again like the senses i'm interested in Kind of happy topics or interesting topics I mean some of these stories are very dark they're so not automatically happy but we were interested in the everyday experiences of love and desire you know not so much the sensational stories so the writers interpreted the the brief in many different ways and the book I'm really proud of it. it's such a good read you know all these different stories to dip into and then relatedly um, I'm involved in a co-authored book about it working with sociologists and geographers as well as um other cultural um activists and, and literary specialists so we're about five of us are, uh, um doing a very similar book to a match made in heaven but in in an academic style so we're drawing on interviews with um Young people age eighteen to thirty from British Pakistani backgrounds. We're talking to them about their love lives or their dreams for the future, their frustrations, the stereotyping around their love and desire, all different themes, and then bringing in the literature to to, to look for parallels. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
1: That's great! Congrats! It sounds like really awesome stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, Claire, thanks again for for making the time, and uh, good luck on your your future endeavors. Thank you, and you too. That was my conversation with Claire Chambers about making sense of contemporary British Muslim novels, published with Palgrave in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.